Good morning. It's great to see you today. Grab your Bibles, your devices. We continue through our study through the book of Ephesians. This morning, today has been read Ephesians chapter 2. Before we start, I want to say happy birthday. And you say, Mark, I didn't know that you knew. Well, I did, yeah, because it's our birthday, 16 years. Wow, what a ride it has been. So if you are just here for maybe a few weeks with us, or if you have been with us for 15 years or more, then I want to say thank you for being a part of this journey and continue to be a part of this journey with us to create a faith family that, that loves all and, and loves God more than anything else. So just thank you, and I want to say happy birthday to you as well. So we're 16, so ever, however 16-year-olds act, that's where we're going to act this morning, right? Isn't that the way it works? Sure it is, absolutely. So grab your Bibles, your devices, I've said, and we will start in just a moment in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. When I read these 10 verses and began to read about them and what commentators write about them, what I realized that many commentators come to some common agreement. And that common agreement is that these are the 10 most important verses of the entire Bible. Now, I can't say that for sure, but I say a lot of people smarter than I have come to that conclusion. And what I realize is that when you grasp these 10 verses, you have a very good working knowledge and understanding of the gospel itself. And to not have an understanding of these 10 verses, I think perhaps gives you a diminished view of of the gospel. So what are you saying, Mark? I'm saying if you've ever listened, then today's the listen. Today is the day. This is the day that you should put on your ears and you should listen to what God has say say to you, not to me, but these words of God to you this morning from these 10 verses. So I named this Jesus saved and I saves. And and so I got this thought from from this. Do you do you remember these? You remember one that you ever seen one of these? How many have ever seen one of these? Raise your hand if you've ever seen one of these. Yeah, this is a throwback, right? And, and perhaps you have one. If you have one, wonderful. Hang on to it. Maybe it's a, you know, a collector's item at some point. But it's simply a car, a tag for your car. It says, Jesus saves. And, and so I titled the teaching this morning that because of the word saves or saved. Because I think that it's a word that sort of, because of our church background, if you have church background, then it kind of, you kind of cringe at it. Because you would rather be referred to as a believer or a Christ follower or just being redeemed. But the word saved sort of kind of gives you a little throwback at times, you know. So maybe it brings back memories of sermons pass. If you're raised in a church, wonderful. If you weren't, then indulge me for just a moment as well. And it brings you to that moment of that preacher who is sweating profusely, right? And he's taken off his tie and then he's taken off his coat and you don't know what's coming next, right? Yeah. What comes off next? He's wiping his brow with his handkerchief or that of a towel that's up here. And he's telling you that you must be saved. Or if you went to a more sophisticated church, right, then your pastor wore a robe and the whole time you're wondering, what is he wearing under the robe? Right. Yeah. And and is he wearing shorts or is he wearing pants or is he wearing something less than shorts? I don't know. Right. Yes. But you're kind of wondering. But he's telling you you have to be saved as well. Or maybe you went to a church that in the lobby 
Or maybe it was like my grandmother's church. They didn't have a lobby. They called it a vestibule, right? Yeah, the vestibule. You can drink coffee in the lobby. You cannot drink coffee in the vestibule. I just want to tell you that, right? And so in the vestibule was this thing called a track rack. Anybody ever remember track racks? Put your hand up if you remember what those are. Okay, so few of you do. Yeah, Google it, okay? You'll understand it, right? But in the lobby was this rack of little booklets they call tracks, right? And then they, you would give them out to people to evangelize and to tell them about Christ. And all, all, there was always one that said that you need to be saved. If you drive down 85 on the way to Greenville, I think there is a sign It says something about being saved as well. And so I think perhaps for some of us, you know, culturally we say, well, that brings back some memories. They're not always the very best memories. They're not super bad memories. So it kind of makes me uncomfortable. But I think perhaps the word, if anything, makes us uncomfortable because it really exposes our condition. And I want to talk about that for a moment because the word really fits these 10 verses that Paul is writing to us this morning. It's a condition in our life before we come to Christ is what it is. And that work of redemption, which is nothing more in our life than straight up rescue, then the word saved fits very well. And so what Paul does, he starts this text out by telling us something that is truth about us and a condition that we were in or some of you are in this morning and you need to be saved. So he says in verse one, he says, and you. So he's talking about us. We're dead in trespasses and sins. And I think context is so important here. We talk about that all the time. So to just look at this, though, in the context of history or to look at in the context of, of that, of of just, um, I think, of, of just who he's writing to, the, the geography of of the uh, Ephesian people and the city they're in, and they're in a city that is inundated with temples to false gods, then we can easily remove ourselves from the context of this and say, hey, this is not about me, but this is about them. But Paul says in you, he says, you who are dead in your trespasses and your sins. It's something that Paul says, you have to own this. And if you don't own this, you're not going to have a real proper view of grace and how that works within your lives. He's writing to the church at Ephesus. And Ephesus is a town where, as we've talked before, is a great hub for intellectuals and the largest library known to that time. A great, uh, a great meeting place for philosophers at that time as well. And so he's probably writing to people that would say, hey, when I hear these words, these words really don't apply to me. My grandfather used to say about people like that sometimes that they were just too smart for their britches. You know, you know what britches are, right? Yeah, yeah. They were just too smart for their britches. And so I think apart from owning these things that we're about to read, then it's going to leave the gospel in a fog for you. And you're going to know God loves you, yes, but you're not going to understand the extent of God's love for you and the details of that love. So go back to verse 1, and it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. We'll get to the were, the, the past tense portion of that as well. But here's a couple of questions for you as we begin. 
how dead, how dead were we? I think that's a, a great question. How dead were we? And then how dead are you? Right. And you say, Mark, dead is dead. Well, give me a moment and let's talk about this for a moment, because what I realize is that this covers the whole gamut of this room. So this kind of hits all of us. So in John MacArthur, in his writings on Ephesians chapter two, he uses an illustration. So I want to borrow an element of that that illustration this morning for a moment. And so he uses a piece of Tupperware. And so I went through our house rummaging for Tupperware and realized that we do not own any Tupperware. We own Rubbermaid, you know, and if you right, and if you own Tupperware, hang on to it because I looked online and some of that stuff is actually collectible and it's valuable. It really is. If you have any, you didn't know that you could be sitting on a gold mine full of Tupperware, right? Think of all the people that you've loaned stuff to. You're going to call them right now, right? Text them. Bring my Tupperware back to me. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're hungry and you're looking through the kitchen and there's always some leftovers in there in a piece of Tupperware, we'll just call it that, right? And you look down to the far vast regions of the lower shelf and you see this piece of Tupperware sitting in the very back and there's something in it and you're hungry and you think, you know, can I eat that? And so your first thought is what? How long has it been in the fridge, Right? So the first thing I do is I call Reba. If she's not home. Isn't this right? How many times have I done this to you? I take pictures of things in the refrigerator and I say, how long has this been in here? And if I eat it, will it kill me? That's what I say, right? Yeah. And so the first thing that Reba says, if she doesn't know how long it's been in there, she says, open it and what? Smell it. Isn't that a horrible thing to tell somebody to do, right? So you open it and you, you smell it, right? And you take a whiff of that, and then like an hour later, after you have regained your consciousness, right, you, you decide whether you're going to eat it or not. And then if it's not smelling too bad, then Reba would always say, is it slimy, right? And I thought about that a lot, you know. I, I really did. How slimy is too slimy, right? Isn't that true? Because some foods are just naturally slimy. So, you know, kind of deal. So I smell it. Whew, it smells pretty rank. So what do I do? I believe if I can put enough barbecue sauce on it, right? <laughs> True. Because in the South, we coat everything in barbecue sauce. If I can put enough barbecue sauce and a little Texas peat on there, then I can probably down this because no deadly thing shall harm me, the Bible says. Isn't that correct? Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. So here's my thought about the Tupperware in the fridge is that by our nature, according to Paul, that we are spiritually dead and rotting. Now, you know, this is about to be a really good sermon, right? Yes. If I start out that way, that we are spiritually dead and we're rotting, that we may smell okay for a while. And we can even cover that stench up of our lives with a little religion, with a little church. Now, come on, that'll preach. You know that will, right? And a little culture and a little information and a little theology. But when you remove the lid, it still smells like death. So I thought, right? If we are dead in our trespasses and our sins, 
and we're talking about God doing something in our life, then how does God do something when we're dead in our trespasses and sins? So I came up with this question. Then is it possible to be alive in one sense and dead in another? To be spiritually dead doesn't mean that that I am physically dead or socially dead or even relationally dead at all. In fact, I have met a lot of people over the years that are lost. They're not saved, but they even have better marriages than people that are saved. Can I get an amen? That's true. You know that's true. So I, I, I thought about this. Paul is talking about a real death here, so I can't devalue what Paul is talking about at all. So what is he talking about? Then he's talking about a death within the most vital portion of my humanness and my humanity, not my physicality, but yet it's my spirit, the most important factor of my life. And I think, and I say all that to say that I think it's so easy for you and I to sit here this morning, and we're breathing, you know, and we think, man, I, I'm going to go to my job tomorrow. I'm going to go to class and get, you know, more of an education, my family, and I, and I feel my pulse, and hey, my, my heart's still beating. So, dude, I'm okay. I have nothing to worry about. I'm alive, and I am good. And maybe you're thinking, and you know, before I came to Christ, I wasn't really that bad of a person, definitely not as bad as the person that I'm sitting next to this morning. Can you look at the person next to you? How do you know what they've done in life, right? Interesting. And so we can easily we can easily remove ourselves from what Paul is saying and saying this doesn't apply to me, but you have to own this. And when I went to scriptures what I realized is that it even describes people that are dead in their trespasses and sins in a lot of other ways. I made a list for you. Aren't you glad? Here is the list for all the list people in the room. It even refers to people like that that are lost to being blind in Second Corinthians, a slave to sin in the book of Romans, a lover of darkness in the book of John, that they are sick in the book of Mark, lost in the book of Luke, an alien, a stranger, a foreigner in the book of Ephesians, a child of wrath that we're going to talk about in Ephesians 2 and 3, under the power of darkness in the book of Colossians. So why are you saying all of this, Mark? Because I don't want you to leave here thinking that if you're dead and you're trespasses and sins, that there is no hope for you. Because what I want to say to you is this, that no one is beyond the reach of God's mercy and grace. There are no closed doors to the mercy and grace of God. And that's what you need to hear this morning. That even those that are dead in their trespasses and their sins, those that are unregenerated and they're dead in that spiritual part of their life, that God can speak to them because they are alive in other places. And God speaks to us through even those other places of our lives. Can I prove that to you? Thank you. It's the book of Hosea. Chapter 11 and verse 4. Hosea 11 says this, I lead them with cords of kindness. Is what he says. Cords of kindness. It is an appeal to our humanness. Is what he says. Even when we're dead. God appeals to us. With the bands of love. And I became to them. As one who eases the yoke. On their jaws. And bent down to them. And fed them. 
Here's what it says to me. That God meets you and I. God meets us in the moment that we're living in. God meets you where you are. That is beautiful. No one is out of the reach of God. And he's saying this in this powerful letter to the church at Ephesus. He's saying, I want to tell you about a God that never gives up on anyone. He never gives up on anyone. He appeals to something or somewhere or someplace in our life. And he draws us to him by his loving kindness is is what he does. So I would tell you, never shy away from sharing the gospel with someone, even when you might think in your own heart and mind that they're too far gone, that yet they're out of the reach of God. Remember and remind yourself what Paul is saying. No one is beyond the reach of God, even those that are dead in their trespasses and their sins, is what he's saying. So I thought about the word trespasses, right? It's an interesting word. It is. Growing up, my mom, my mom never told me, not one time did my mother ever tell me that she was angry or mad at me. Not one time did she ever say those words. And I did a lot of things to really give her some really good criteria to to feel that way about me. Trust me. But she never said that. What my mom always said to me was that she was what? disappointed in me. Oh, I hated that. Have you ever been there? Why does that hurt worse than someone saying they're mad or that they are angry at you? Why? Because you can be mad and angry at someone and really not be hurt. But being disappointed simply means that she had an expectation of my relationship with her And I crossed that line in that expectation. That's exactly what trespasses means when it comes to God, is is that we crossed a line with God, and then we rebelled. It's rebellion. You and I crossed a line with God. That's our trespasses. And then he says that we are dead in our sins. That means that we missed the mark of the perfection of God's standard. So we failed. So I did a little equation for you this morning, and that is trespasses plus sin equals, before God, we were rebels and failures. Some of you are saying to yourself, I picked the wrong Sunday to come to this church, right? Yes. But I want you to see what Paul is saying that you must own and I must own about who I am. Who I either who I am or who I was before Christ came into my life. Because what I realize is this. I need a very clear picture of the gospel. Because the gospel, as we said so many times in our teachings, that it is the fuel in which all of my spiritual disciplines run off of. So if I don't have a very clear view of the gospel, then I am going to be lacking for fuel in the area of my prayer life, in the area of sharing the gospel with others, in the area of studying scripture, in all of those physical or spiritual disciplines, I'm going to lack because I don't have a clear understanding of the gospel. Man, Mark, I am so glad you got the bad stuff out of the way first. Can I tell you something? It's going to get worse. No, it really is. It's going to get worse. Look at verse 2. 
in which you once walked, followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Oh, I love the way Paul ends verse 3. Because he says this to all of us, it thinks, I'm not so bad, and I'm not as bad as the other guy or the person next to me or the person that I know of. And what he's saying is, hang on, dispel that lie, because there's no difference in you than them. And he says, in which you once walked following the course of this world. And you say, okay, I give up, right? I give up in this teaching. I give up that. Yeah, there were times I did things my way, right? I did things my way. Not talking about the Elvis song either, but I did things my way. Right. And, and, and I admit that I've done that in my life with God. And so that's my issue. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, no, no, it's not that you just did things your way, but it's who you followed is what he's saying. And then he says, let me tell you who you are following. You are following the prince of the power of the air. Who is he talking about? He is talking about Satan is who he's talking about. That speaks of Satan's authority, speaking of him as a prince, his realm or his environment, that he rules over darkness and dark and evil powers and wickedness, that this is real. It's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 at the very end of the book, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the powers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So this is not some ethereal idea that he's talking about with us. It's not that at all. And he says, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So he says, yeah, listen, you're dead in your trespasses and sin. You did things your way, right? You kind of took things into your own hands. You did things your way. Why? Because you were following Satan, the prince and the power of the air. But then he says, the spirit is that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So what is he saying? Who is he referring to? He's saying, hey... It's not that you were just followers of Satan. No, no, it's worse than that. That when you joined him in your rebellion against God, you became sons and daughters of Satan. Wow. I am winning a whole lot of friends today. I realize that, right? But this is transformational for you and I. It is. Sons and daughters of Satan. And his spirit as being that father figure shaped our lives. As the influence of a father would shape a child, so his influence shaped our lives. Say, Mark, I don't believe that. I just don't believe that. Thank you for the challenge because I want to show you something. What was Satan's problem 
Can I show you this in the book of Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13. This is Satan's problems because Isaiah the prophet quotes Satan's words. And here's what he says. And you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will set on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And he's simply sharing, the prophet is, the heart of Satan with you and I. It reveals his innermost being. The core of Satan's rebellion was the I will complex. It's what it was. It was the I problem. Jesus had all of his I am, excuse me, statements. And Satan had all of his I will statements. Why? Because Satan cannot, he cannot create anything. He has no creative power. And all he can do is imitate and a very poor imitation of the things that God has created. That's how he deceives us. So let me show you something. He has this eye problem, and we wonder where that issue came with us. I have this, God. I don't need your help. Right? God, I can white knuckle my own life and I can make this happen with my own abilities. Or the lie of our culture that I am enough. Where did we get those statements from? Did we just pull them out of our own creativity? Absolutely not. They were molded into you and I from our father Adam who simply got those by influenced by Satan. Wow. And Paul says we have to own this. Wow. Somebody came up after first service and said to me, they made a statement to me, I didn't quite understand it. They said <clears throat> that we have pulled a garden hose out in front of the steps out of the church and we have it out there running. And, and I said, why do you have a garden hose? I just asked. I, just, I didn't know what they were saying to me, right? And I said, why? And they said, to put the fire out from all of our tails after the sermon is what they said. And I want you to understand that I'm not sure that's the intent of Paul saying these words to us. The intent of these words are to cause you to have a greater understanding of the power of the gospel within your life. Because Paul says, you, you once walked. He makes this statement now, and this gets better, right? Because he says, you, you once walked. Because the old man has been crucified with Christ. So because of the old man being crucified with Christ, then things should be different now in our lives. They should be different because the flesh is being crucified. So our actions and and the way we see things in this life are, are transformed. So things should be different after we are saved. And I thought, well, how, how does that look? That That's like a it's like a dead man who 
feels comfortable in his coffin. You say, Mark, that's a terrible, you know, analogy, but just listen to me for a moment. It's like a dead man who feels comfortable in his coffin. But if he has made alive again, he is no longer comfortable in the coffin. Isn't that right? Yes, absolutely. The coffin becomes suffocating and uncomfortable to him. His urge is not to stay there. His urge is to get away from the coffin is exactly what his urge is. And when we were spiritually dead, man, we were comfortable in the coffin is what we're what Paul is simply saying to us. We were comfortable in our trespasses and our sins. But having come to new life, that comfortability in the coffin has left us. It's no longer there. Now our sin is suffocating and it's uncomfortable. And we hate the thing that God hates in our life. And that is our sin. So how do you feel about your sin? I forgot I was going to ask that question. I told you it was going to get better, right? No, I want to say, how do you feel about your sin? Do you hate your sin? And do you love the unexplainable grace and the mercy of God for your life? Because we should hate our sin enough that it causes us to run to God and to his mercy. Because you'll never, you will never love God's grace the way you should love God's grace unless you first hate the sin in your life. Wow. So how do you feel about the sin of your life? I think it's a big question that we all have to really deal with this morning. And he says, you were by nature, you were by nature children of wrath. That this mercy and love from God, we didn't deserve this. We deserve the wrath of God. And I think until we really understand the problem of our life, then we will never fully embrace the gospel. Look at verse four. Now it gets better. Everybody breathe in, <sighs> breathe out. Yeah, it's good, right? Reach down, remove the seatbelt from your pew this morning. Okay, listen to what God says. But God, I love the buts of the Bible, don't you? Yes, I love them. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace we have been saved, raised us up, with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, what is God's motive behind saving me? I don't know if you're like me, but I like to know motive, right? I want to know what God is thinking. So what is God's motive behind saving me? And I say that God's motive has always been reconciliation. Yes, but he says, but God. And then he also uses a phrase because of. So that does tell me that God has a motive. There's some motive behind what God did by stepping into the mess and the fray of our own lives. Because we do not deserve it. It's not as if God saw some kind of potential in our life. That makes about as much sense as you going to a funeral and you go through the viewing and you come up to the casket and you look at the person sitting in the casket and you think to yourself, my goodness, that guy is just beaming with potential, right? No, 
You don't even have that thought. If you do, something is wrong with you and you should stay home, right? No, absolutely not. This is why Paul starts his convo out by saying, you were dead in your trespasses and your sin. But and because, though, says that God has a reason that he did what he did within our lives. And here it is, and I love this, and this is transformational. And it is that every reason for God's mercy and grace, every reason for God's mercy and grace is found exclusively in him. And what that means for you and I this morning is this, that it takes me out of the equation. It says that I don't have to be good enough, that I don't have to be perfect because he's already perfect in my place, that Jesus carried all of those weights to the cross with him. So stop trying to make yourself lovable for God. So I posed a question. How much time have you wasted trying to make yourself lovable to him? Because I know that many of you in this room, you have done that and you will do that again within your life because it's a real trick of the enemy. Here is the thought this morning that he loves you and that is it. That is it, that he loves you today. Understand that. So stop trying to earn something from God that has been freely given by him. Stop trying to just modify your behavior all the time and thinking that that will somehow make God love you more, that you can fix yourself and fix everyone else around you and all the situations, situations that surround you. No, stop. This is not your own doing, Paul says. It is a gift of God. For his glory, he loves you. And that truth frees you from earning anything. Do you realize that? For his glory, he has loved you. And that frees you from having to earn anything. Wow. For all the I will statements that we learned by the influence being sons and daughters of disobedience that we realize that those are all a lie of the enemy. That he loves you for his own glory. And that frees you from earning anything from him. Verse 10, and this is where we tie it all together. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So my last thought is this. Be confident that God's, that what God started in you, he will finish. God will finish the thing that he started within you. Here's the thought. That you are not saved by good works. But Paul's point is this. If you are saved, you will do good works. Understand that. You weren't saved by good works, but if you are saved, then you are going to do good works because there is a transformation process that is taking place in your life because you are in Christ, joined to Christ, as we said last week together. So there's no way that you can have this kind of experience and not be changed. There's no way. Because our works are the evidence of the work of God within our life. 
So how can you and I say that we understand the gospel? How can we say that? How can we say that we love God if we are continually? And I say this to you, and then I will qualify this statement. If we are continually enjoying the things that put him on the cross. And that is our sin. You say, Mark, are you calling us to be perfect? No, no, I'm not calling you to be anything. I'm just telling you what the scripture says. And what I realize that we fail as humans and we will make mistakes and we will sin. But when you find yourself continually enjoying the sinfulness of your life, then how do we say simultaneously that we love God if we're not hating the sin of our lives? Because if you are saved, regenerated, born again, if you've experienced the salvic work of Christ in your life, then you will do good works. You will. And then the last statement, which I think is perhaps one of the most important statements that Paul leaves us with. He says that that you're prepared that these works or his workmanship in your life is prepared beforehand. And I thought, why does he say that prepared beforehand? And I begin to look at this and this means the very same thing that he says back in chapter one, that P word that we're always afraid to talk about in church. And that is the predestination word. And so it means very much the same thing that God has already preplanned these works for you, that he's created the opportunities in your life for them. He has pre-infused you with power to accomplish them. In fact, the word workmanship that he uses here, it's the same Greek word that we find in the English language for the word poem. And I thought, well, that's a very interesting word that he uses there. Workmanship being the same word that we use for the word poem. And, and, and so I, I thought about that, that, that God has started writing this poem in our life is what he's done. He started writing this masterpiece. He's creating a symphony in my life, in your life that glorifies him, that he is not only the author of our faith, but he is also the finisher and the perfecter of our faith as well. Because some of you are sitting here saying, Mark, I'm not sure I can walk this out with God. You know, I'm not sure I can make this journey with all the things that Paul is saying. I'm not sure that I can do that. And I want to tell you that what Paul says to us as he's saying prepared beforehand, he dispels that fear and he's saying to you and I, That what God has birthed in you, the beauty of God's work within my life and your life, that he will gloriously complete that within you. Same word for workmanship that's used in the book of Genesis when God speaks creation into existence. Same word. And I thought about this. The element of creation that if you remove it, devalues it, would say that somehow God took some kind of raw material 
And he created the universe out of some raw material so it would not make the creation event completely a handiwork of God. Why does Paul choose to use the same language? Because creation says that God spoke into nothing and created everything. Paul's language here regarding our salvation says that God spoke into the vastness and the darkness of the nothing of our souls. And he spoke life. Because anything outside of that would not have made it a complete work of God. And to miss that would be the same thing as taking out that element of creation and saying that somehow God took something of someone else's work and created what we have today in the heavens and the earth. And we know that's not true. So God speaks into the darkness of our souls just as the sun came up this morning and it pierced the darkness of our existence that our souls had to yield to the light of God as the dark this morning had to yield to the light of the sun. And I thought about that. That this is truly... Ten verses that paints a picture of who we were, or if you are not following Christ today, who you are, and the powerful work of God within our lives. But it reminds us of perhaps the most important part in that we were totally helpless. And he reaches into the darkness of our lives. Do you know Christianity is really not about us doing anything for God? Christianity is really about us yielding to God and then God doing everything through us. And so maybe where you're struggling with today is the yielding part of this. And maybe that's what this is about for you. Maybe you have to yield some pride in your life and embrace the things that Paul has said about you in order to have a clearer picture of the gospel and the grace of God in your life. Perhaps some of you, you got to yield some sin because you find yourself in the comfortability of that. And to realize that it's nothing 
but a coffin is what it is. So what I love about these 10 verses is that it covers the entire gamut of our existence, doesn't it? Everything. Everything about us, it covers. And as hard as it is, it brings light to the greatest love story ever written for you and for his glory. So what is it that you need to yield to him today? What is it that you need to yield to him this morning? So can I pray with you for a moment? Do you mind bowing your heads or closing your eyes or whatever posture of prayer you desire to take? Those who are watching us at home, would you do the same? And allow me to pray for you and pray with you today. So, Father, we have set in these 10 verses this morning. And these verses have challenged us and exposed things in our lives. They have brought us to a moment of yielding in our life as well. And Father, we realize by the power of your Holy Spirit that these texts are illuminated in even in a greater way in our own hearts and our minds. So, Lord, let us yield to them as well. God, that you would give us a a greater view and a more accurate view of the gospel in our life. And God, that you would bring us to a place today of yielding to you. To stop trying to make ourselves lovable because you can never love us any more than you love us at this very moment of our life. So, Father, we yield to you. Our hearts and our minds. We yield to you the sin of our life. We yield to you our pride. We yield to you all of those I will statements that were influenced upon us by our father Adam, who was influenced by the devil himself. God, we just yield to you. Do your sovereign and providential work in our lives this morning. Transform us. Because, Father, we are no longer children of disobedience. But today we are children of the light. And so we yield everything to you. Everything. So work in our hearts and our lives. In this very moment. 
Thank you, Father. Lord, for those in the room that need to yield a spirit of unforgiveness in their lives, Father, let this be the day that they start that journey toward forgiveness. For those that yield anger and pride, self-righteousness, Father, let this be the day that that journey begins in our life. Lord, for those that need to yield their sin to you, their addiction, their comfortable place, let this begin that journey today. Knowing that we don't have to work on being lovable with you. Because you love us lavishly at this very moment. Thank you, Father, for revealing the gospel in a way that is transformational in our life. In your name we pray. Amen.